You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. This is Jay Shapiro. We are now in the midst of a war, a war that began a little more than a week ago when more than a thousand Israelis were massacred by Palestinian terrorists. I'm not going to go into all kinds of details because details are available in the news. But I want to make a couple comments. And since I'm recording this program on Monday morning, more information will become available during the week that I'll comment on. In the meantime, I want to tell the listeners that I sent a letter to the Jerusalem Post today, whether they publish it or not, not important, but I want to read the letter to the listeners because I think what I say is important. And it's the following. The events of the last 10 days bring up something that is very unpleasant, two unpleasant points that have not been given attention. First, the Oslo Agreements of 1992 that resulted in Nobel Peace Prizes being awarded to Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, and arch-terrorist Yasser Arafat were a historic blunder on a par with the Munich Agreements in 1938 between Neville Chamberlain of England and Adolf Hitler of Germany. Both events were acclaimed at the time, but both resulted in death and destruction, especially of Jews. Second, the much maligned and ostracized Rabbi Meir Kahana was the only one who understood the nature of the Jewish-Palestinian conflict. He proposed the separation of the populations to prevent bloodshed that was sure to occur. We are now paying the price of not taking his warning seriously. The time has come for Israel to adopt and apply the slogan of Mayor Kahana's outlawed but vindicated political party called Kach. Their slogan was, Never Again. That's the letter that I wrote to the Jerusalem Post. Whether they publish it or not, I'll I'll let the readers know. At any rate, I wrote a book 30 years ago about Mayor Kahana. The book was called Mayor Kahana, The Litmus Test of Israel's Democracy. And I want to quote something from the introduction about Mayor Kahana and the way he was treated by the Israeli public, by the Israeli political system. 
In the United States, special interest groups formed lobbies to influence legislation. In Israel, such groups have only limited influence unless they form political parties. So that is why Mayor Kahana, who immigrated to Israel from the United States, decided to enter politics. He, he soon found that his natural constituency was the Jews whose families had emigrated from Arab countries. They saw in Kahana an uncorrupted, uncompromising figure who understood and articulated their political needs. The stridency that marked his public image appealed to many who admired style even more than content. When denied the legitimacy that Knesset membership provides, the streets remained his main area of activities. It was there that the passions and emotions of his followers carried more weight than his ideas. As the enfant terrible of American Jewry, he was effective, but in the end, in Israel, he was the victim of his own virtues. He was incapable of compromise. Had that not been the case, he would have lost the hard nucleus of his political constituency. He, came, he became, in a sense, a captive of his own oratory and popularity. But compromise is inherent in the very nature of the democratic system. For without compromise, cannot, one cannot build the coalitions that are needed to govern effectively. Abraham Lincoln, in responding to a question about whether he voted according to his conscience, said that he did so 10% of the time because he did not, not vote against his conscience the other 90% of the time he would not have the opportunity to vote with his conscience at all. So without compromise, Mayor Kahana could not establish the credibility to expand his political base. The movement that he founded and led soon reached a dead end. It's a moot question as what direction he would have eventually taken, for he was murdered. So it's best left to history to pass the ultimate judgment on Mayor Kahana. History will be more objective than any of his contemporaries. That's what I wrote in my introduction to the book about Mayor Kahana. <clears throat> and I believe the facts of the last 10 days prove that Mayor Kahana was correct. Incidentally, just as an aside, I want to say something about the freedom of speech uh, because Mayor Kahana <clears throat> was silenced. And uh, I quote in my book, I quoted something that was stated by Walter Lippmann. And uh, what I said then is still true today. 
I'll take the trouble of <coughs> repeating it for the listeners. <coughs> Walter Lippmann wrote that the essence of freedom of opinion is not mere toleration, but the debate that toleration provides is not the venting of opinion, but the confrontation of opinion. Free oratory is only the beginning of free speech. It's not the end, but it is a means to an end. The end is to find truth and act in its light. The practical justification of free speech is not that self-expression is one of the necessities of man. Freedom should be cherished, not because it is a vent for our opinions, but because it's the surest way of correcting them. The virtue of liberty is that it tolerates error in order to serve the truth. When men are brought face to face with their opponents, forced to listen and learn and mend their ideas, they begin to live like civilized people. Freedom is a reality when men may voice their opinions because they must examine those opinions. A society that wishes to be free must accept that opposition, however unpleasant, should it not only be tolerated, but it must be maintained, for it is indispensable. Here in Israel, 35 years ago, they shut up Mayor Kahana. They did not allow him to speak. He was literally tossed out of the Knesset. When he got up to speak, all the members of the Knesset, right and left, left the Knesset plenum, and he spoke with only the Speaker of the Knesset pleasant. That's what happened 35 years ago. We're now paying the price of not allowing him to speak and not allowing him to be heard. And I think that this is a lesson for Israeli democracy. The system here has to be changed. The political system, there's no, no doubt about it. But I think the greatest crime in the political system since the founding of the state was the shutting up of Mayor Kahana. What he had to say then is now shown to be totally cruel. It's interesting, by the way, I, uh, I, I pretty much left it for sociologists and psychologists to study those groups purportedly devoted to protecting civil rights who vividly protest the administrative detention of suspected Arab terrorists. Uh, who's, these Arab terrorist activities present a clear and immediate danger to the public. They were silent when in 1980, Mayor Kahana was placed for six months in a maximum security prison with murderers and rapists under the same detention procedures. So the, um, the, 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 uh, the idea of uh, potentially uh, moving and transferring a hostile population, uh, um, that mayor 
Mayor Kahano is in favor of move, moving the, the Arab population, which is similar for which a Nobel Prize was won at the end of the First World War by separating the Greek and Turkish populations. I think it was called the, Nance, the Nansen Passport Agreement. The, the Turks and the, uh, and the Greeks couldn't get along with each other, and uh, the populations were, set, were separated. Greeks were removed from Turkey and uh, sent to Greece. Turks removed Greece and sent to Turkey. When Mayor Kahana uh, proposed the same idea to separate the Palestinian and Jewish populations, he was vilified and kicked out of the Knesset. And now we are reaping the results of not listening to him. I don't like to talk about politics. I like to look back at history and see what we can learn. It's been said that if you don't learn from history, you're going to repeat the same mistakes. We are now paying the price of not listening to people who said things that were considered outlandish at the problem, but they made a lot of sense. The daily newspapers here in Israel show that Mayor Kahana was right. There's no two ways about it. In order to understand what I mean, I think it's important that we relate to Middle Eastern culture, the history of the Arab-Jewish relations, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and also the plight of the Jews evicted from the Arab countries in the early years of the state. Consider the following. In more than 1,000 years of contact, Arabs and Westerners still do not understand each other. But one cannot even begin to understand the events in the Middle East without acknowledging and coping with the fact that the dominant culture here in the Middle East is not Western. All philosophies and beliefs are pictures in people's minds of the nature of reality. They are only actual ideas or explanations of reality. These pictures are real in the sense they are constructions of the human mind and they tell us a great deal about the mind works as the product of a given culture. Ultimately, what makes sense or doesn't make sense is culturally determined and depends heavily upon the context in which the evaluations are made. It cannot be sufficiently emphasized that culture has penetrated to the roots of the nervous system. It determines how one perceives the world. Most of culture lies hidden is outside of voluntary control. People cannot act or interact in any meaningful way except through the medium of their culture. It determines the way they move, their rhythm, the manner in which they perceive time and space, the way they use their senses, how close they get to each other even, the types of social bonds they form, 
how they experience reality and how their emotions and, are expressed and then what constitutes an insult. It directs the way people perceive things, make decisions, order priorities, organize their lives, and behave politically. Most important, it determines how they think. The only way to experience another cultural group is to understand and accept the way the minds of members of that culture work. And the inability to do just that is at the root of the West's failure to understand much of what happens in other parts of the world, like what's happening now here at this very moment, here in the Middle, in, here in the Middle East. For the products of modern liberal culture, much, much of what is actually happening here is frightening and it's unbelievable. Indeed, the liberal bent of the intellectuals and opinion makers in the West makes them deny the importance of cultural relativism. The, in order to fully understand the acts of other people, we must not only what they think they know, in order to justice to do them justice, not only do we have to appraise the information at their disposal, we have to understand the minds that process information. The people in the West, particularly in the United States, Western Europe, do not understand the Middle East. They do not understand how the Middle Eastern minds, mind handles information. The 19th century rise of liberalism meant faith in moral and material progress. In the Middle East, however, the norm is the Saddam Husseinis, the Arafats, the Gaddafis, and the Khomeinis, and hostility, violence, and religious intolerance a fact of nature, much, much like the weather. Israelis raised in the Arab world know and understand this, and not others would like it to be. To understand this, we have to understand the minds of the Arab world, something that the West does not do, and this has led us to the present catastrophe. Very sad, but it's true. So, though, let me. <clears throat> it's, it's interesting, by the way, one final thought. On a personal level, Israelis of Middle Eastern background know what it means to be a minority in the Mosque world and how to protect the Jew or what they call the Dimi were treated by the Muslims. They have no illusions about Arab propaganda. propaganda. The problem we have is our leadership here is Western-oriented. Their perceptions are are different. They are refracted through the culture in which they were raised. Our leadership was raised in Western culture. However, we are living in an Eastern culture, the Arab culture. That's the one we have to deal with. Uh, I don't want to be too, too philosophical. I'll stop here, come back after the break. Shalom, atem akshivim, Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro, 
And uh, I came across something of interest, which you don't find in the headlines in the papers, but I think it's important to know. Uh, the, uh, something was put out, a paper was called, put out by the be the uh, Begin Sadat Center. Uh, it's uh, associated with Bailan uh, University. They put out a prospectus paper, number 2219, on October 16th, just now. And it said the following, which I found of tremendous interest. As part of the ongoing operation in Gaza, which is called Swords of Iron, the Israel Ministry of Energy announced on October 12th that it had cut off electricity, water, and diesel supply to the Gaza Strip. That's what was announced. Now, it's interesting to note, during times of peace, 50% of the electricity in Gaza is provided by Israel through 10 points of entry, and it amounts to approximately 120 million watts per day. Israel provides electricity at no cost to Gaza, although technically <clears throat> the Palestinian Authority is responsible for paying for the electricity supply to Gaza and instead accumulates the debt until it is periodically forgiven and erased. Current electricity debt stands at 2 billion Israeli shekels, which is approximately 500 million U.S. dollars. In other words, the Israeli taxpayer is ta ch being charged for the electricity given to the terrorists in Gaza at the rate of now $500 million. Now, the other half of Gaza's electricity is generated independently. Uh, Gaza has one diesel fuel power plant, produces around 25% of Gaza's supply. The rest of the electricity is generated through a, a wide uh, array of rooftop solar what they call photovoltaic panels and private diesel generators. And during the day, around 25% of Gaza electricity is generated through these panels, and it's it's very it's a high it's a high amount. All this is made possible through multiple funding projects led by the United Nations and other uh, governmental organizations. Now, right now, the electricity infrastructure in Gaza is really in bad condition. The population of Gaza receives an average of four hours per day of continuous electricity supply. This is due to the dilapidated electricity infrastructure that was damaged previously by other Israeli operations. Though large sums in foreign aid were delivered to Hamas specifically to reconstruct the grid, Hamas has diverted the funds elsewhere and left the grid in its current condition. This has forced Gaza residents to seek private solutions 
like small-scale diesel generators. So, the, due to this, the immediate effect of cutting off the electricity supply from Israel to Gaza is somewhat limited. So, the people in Gaza are accustomed to not relying on the main grid. Government buildings and hospitals and the wealthier parts of the population have their own private solutions to get generated electricity. So what's happening is that Hamas headquarters and their underground bases will continue to have electricity because they accumulated diesel for weeks or months prior, prior, before the, prior to the present war. Now, in addition to cutting off uh, electric supply to Gaza, Israel has also announced it's cut off diesel supply. During peacetime, Israel provides Gaza with diesel from oil refineries in Haifa. And, and Hamas also sometimes purchases more expensive diesel from Egypt. So uh, they also get some diesel from uh, Egypt by truck. But Israel's announced it has blocked the Egyptian route. So they cannot really, now at the moment, they cannot really supply enough uh, electricity in Gaza. So the broader impact of a long-term power outage in Gaza will be on its water supply and also the sewage treatment, which cannot operate without continuous electric supply. So, the the, U, the uh, European Union pride provides funds for pipelines and water treatment, but water can't flow through pipelines without continuous electric supply. So, the uh, interesting, by the way, is adding to this problem is that many segments of the water pipelines in Gaza were recently dug out by Hamas to be converted into weapons, and Hamas admits to this. So what happens? The, the large segments of the population in Gaza have to rely, to rely on water trucks. So in terms of international law, the bottom line is Israel is walking a fine line. Israel has not destroyed the power plant in Gaza or the capacity to resume electricity in the water supply Gaza once this operation ends. So long as Israel can show that the supply cuts are a time-lived measure of war, so it would not be considered a war crime. However, as time goes on, the Europeans are going to look upon the lack of electricity and water in Gaza as a war crime of Israel. So, so uh, they have a humanitarian crisis. It's of their own making. So the Europeans can look upon uh, this as a, a legal, a collective punishment. So uh, the, the the Europeans can look upon this as a war crime. So uh, it's it's a, it's a problem, it really is. There might be legal consequences for senior Israeli officials after this war is over. But the uh, it's true. Uh, the current Israeli government made a recent attempt to, uh, to claim the, the electricity, electricity debt owned by the Palestinian Authority by withholding its tax income, but that's also a, a, uh, a complicated issue.
So the bottom line of what I was trying to say so far is that the the cutting the electricity electricity supply to Gaza to Gaza has consequences, but it may have negative consequences vis-a-vis Israel. Uh, the 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 Gazans have been getting electricity, owing millions to uh, billions of dollars to Israel. They haven't paid their debt. The debt, and that is a possibility by that cutting off the electricity is going to give Israel a black eye in the eyes of the European governments. These are the facts on the ground, something I was not aware of, but I want now that I know it, I wanted the... Uh, listeners to be aware of this part of the ongoing struggle that uh, it's not visible to the naked eye. On a completely different subject, the the Knesset, the Israeli Congress, is pretty much on hold, but uh, everything is going to have to wait until after this this, uh, present problem is resolved. So it's difficult to imagine the day after, but it will come. And what it does, all the issues that are now are put to side will return. But they will return to the country with a very different perspective. This war is going to change a lot of things, including particularly how we look at things and how we reevaluate the way we looked at a lot of problems we had before this war occurred. Now, the Jerusalem Post brought up something that I've thought a lot about myself, but now it's become a public issue. One issue is that the pre-war Netanyahu government hoped to pass was a bill formally exempting yeshiva students from military duty. The bill will be shelved, and a new one will be introduced, will have to be introduced, but that will make service of some kind mandatory for everyone. No one is free from serving the country. The... uh, What's happened in the last 10 days have revealed some truths about Israeli society. One such truth as this country is not safe, engaged in a struggle for existence, that it is surrounded by enemies who want to destroy that. In such a situation, everyone, everyone in Israel has to lend a hand to support the state. The idea that Israel could rely on technological superiority and a small, lean army equipped with state-of-the-art technology have proven to be mistaken. Just like the war back when I first came to Israel, the Yom Kippur War changed everything This war is changing everything. Faced with uh, fences with super sensitive sensors and infrared cameras and walls that sink down to the waterline 
do not defend the state of Israel for what is needed, the bottom line, as manpower. The uh, One of the reasons that was put forth for lack of sufficient army presence in the south was that forces were moved to Judea and Samaria to deal with a spike in terrorism there. However, our army is simply stretched too thin. We need more soldiers. Israel needs an army big enough that it never again finds itself in a situation where if it moves troops to deal with a crisis on one front, it leaves another front exposed. Israel does not have the luxury to exempt thousands, tens of thousands, of able-bodied youth from bearing the national defense burden, nor should it want to. Tens of thousands of parents in this country are worrying today over the fate of their sons and daughters, the fact that there are other parents without such a burden, there are other sons and daughters not risking their lives for the surety of the country, is an inequality that not, cannot continue. We cannot have an inequality in bearing the burden of defending this country. So, the Haredi community needs to do its share in ensuring the survival of this country physically. There is no doubt of the importance of studying Torah. There's no two ways about it. Torah is central to Jewish life. Torah has eternal value, and it's essential for the soul of the Jewish people. But Without a body, there is no soul. Without a state, there will be no learning Torah. So, when the country returns to normal, the Haredi exemption law needs to disappear. The events of what happened now have made that painfully clear. Everyone must share in the burden of protecting this country. It is everyone's country, and everyone must share in protecting it. There can no longer be a Haredi exemption law. Back when the first law was first passed, and when the state first came into being, the, the total number of exemptions was about 400. And Ben-Gurion agreed with Chazonish, the spiritual leader of the Jewish community, that you must uh, uh, enable Torah students to continue because Torah is basic to the survival of the Jewish people. Then there were 400. Today there are tens of thousands. Israel cannot afford not for those tens of thousands not to share the physical burden of defending this country. Because, first of all, it's morally wrong, and second of all, it, it'll cause, it causes a lot of uh, those who, who have to serve to be resentful, 
and it causes a split in the country. We cannot have that. The enemies against us are unified against us. We must be have unified. We must be unified to defend ourselves. And unified means not only in agreeing to policies, but we have to agree to carry, to share the physical burden of defending the country. There are no two ways about it. No one can be exempt from physically defending the country. If one is not physically fit, they can find other ways to serve the country in its defense. Not everyone can be a combat soldier. Not everyone can even be a soldier. But you must be involved in the defense of the country. Otherwise, your citizenship is really in doubt. Everyone must share in the defense of the country. Without a doubt, we will prevail. However, there is no doubt that we will never be the same. The willingness of people to help is overwhelming, and there is beauty in the Israeli spirit. We face an unprecedented blow. It's like our second Yom Kippur war. How did it happen? We, we don't know. Maybe they'll do investigations afterwards. The, the full extent of the surprise attack uh, on the holiday of Simchat Torah is only becoming clear. Hamas conducted a brutal attack against civilians, butchering over 1,300 kidnapping well over a hundred children, the elderly, and families. This is the, it is responsible of all Israelis to respond to this quest. We, we, we have to admit we failed at all levels, intelligence, operations, and strategy. So these things will be investigated after, afterwards. How did all this happen unnoticed by Israeli intelligence? So the, all these questions, fundamental questions, have to be answered. Do we, the, uh, had we gotten accustomed to low-intensity conflict? And uh, so the news today is very difficult to watch, but we should learn from it. The... Uh, we cannot allow things to continue as they have been. Things are no longer the way they were before. And we must reevaluate the responsibility of all citizens of Israel and unto defending this country. This is it's all when this, when the smoke clears. This is going to be a new Israel. So we, we are going to win this war, but we have to learn something from it. And the thing we have to learn something from it, I believe, among other things, that everyone has to share in protecting this society. The barbaric nature of Hamas is, 
a terrorist organization is widely supported by the Palestinian people, not only in the Gaza Strip. According to the latest Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, they did a poll conducted by a Palestinian pollster at the end of last month, and it came to the following conclusion. If elections were held now in the Palestinian Authority, Hamas leader Ismail Haniya would defeat Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas with a majority of almost 60%. In this context, there's no doubt that the massacre of innocent people by Hamas originated, among other things, from the education of hatred of Jews in textbooks in Palestinian schools and incitement in mosques and in the Palestinian media, both in Gaza and in the area controlled by the Palestinian Authority in the center of Eretz Yisrael. The the Palestinians who control the Palestinian Authority portion of of the center of Eretz Yisrael do not get along with those who control the Gaza Strip. That's Hamas. The only thing they have in common is their hatred of the Jews and their education for the hatred of the Jews. Now, there's no doubt, God willing, that Israel will succeed in defeating Hamas and any other Palestinian terrorist organizations. Thank God we we expect that, we hope that, we pray for that. All that is needed for the Jewish state is continued determination, continued patience, and international legitimacy, which we currently have been granted by, by our, our friends in the world. However, we have to take a broad view of what's happening. It's essential to remember one fact that may certainly affect the future not only of Israel, but of the free world. No one to forget that Hamas in Gaza is part of an axis of evil which is led by Iran. This axis of evil includes Syria, and it includes Hezbollah, which took the state of Lebanon and controls Lebanon. Since the Islamic Revolution in Iran 40 years ago, the regime in Iran has supported Hamas financially and militarily. It's, it's, uh, that support has increased since it took over the Gaza Strip back in 2007. Similar to the precise and advanced weapons that Iran has transported to Hezbollah in the north, in Lebanon, which, by the way, according to estimates, possesses 150,000 rockets and missiles that cover the entire territory of Israel, Israel has supplies weapons to Hamas and the Gaza Strip to 
tunnels. They've trained terrorists and given them extensive knowledge in terrorist warfare. Furthermore, according to the Wall Street Journal, Iran has been behind the murderous terrorist attack that happened last week. So, the free world does not have to imagine what would happen if Iran had a nuclear weapon. It would not only harm Israel, but it would also harm Europe, Germany, Great Britain, France, and even the United States. They should simply understand that the massacre committed by Hamas on October 7th, 10 days ago, is only the preclude to an Iranian nuclear bomb that will fall on one of the European cities which are within range of this axis of evil. The war against Israel is a war against the free world. There's no doubt that Iran must not have nuclear weapons. When Iran possesses nuclear weapons, it'll be difficult, if not impossible, the, the, for the West to prevent massacres of innocent people anywhere. Western leaders should not fall into the trap that leading politicians in Europe found fell into uh, when they, they thought that the terrorism of Hamas and Hezbollah was only against Jews. See, in conclusion, I recently read an article by the, a research fellow uh, from the United Kingdom who said that the Western world which until now has been occupied with the terrible war in Ukraine, has not paid attention to a much greater threat to the world, to the Western world, in the form of radical Islam, led by the terrorist regime in Iran. Using terrorism, the radicals in Iran threaten all the countries in the world. And... Uh, the, it, it, there's no doubt, I think, if you look at the fact that these uh, Israel signed what's called the Abraham Accords with several of the nations around us, and I understand, understood that Saudi Arabia may be in line, the, it, it, there could be normalization agreement with, between all the uh, Arabian uh, Arab countries. These people... Don't, I do believe, do not want war. They want a better future for themselves. And Israel was in the process of making agreements with all those countries that, that will get us a better future. There is no doubt the handwriting is on the wall. Iran must be prevented from getting a nuclear weapon at all costs. Any nuclear agreement with Iran only gives it more time on the way to achieving a nuclear capability with the help of which it will be able to enslave all the countries in the Middle East and after that, 
go toward the west to, to Europe. So it's time now to stop the terrorist regime in Iraq. Forty years ago, Israel took the lead in preventing Iraq from becoming a nuclear power. It's now the responsibility of the entire Western world, for its own sake, to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear power. So right now, uh, this week, the, the Americans are moving their fleet into the uh, eastern Mediterranean. Hopefully, all these are signs that the Western world, led by the United States, is aware of the danger to the future of Western civilization that's presented by an, a, a, a nuclear-powered Iran. So let's see what will be. Again, I, I've often said to my listeners, I'm not a big uh, strategist, and I, I only have a program once a week. I gather information that I share with the listeners, and it, this is a very fast-moving time, and hopefully the leaders of the West will understand that Israel cannot stand alone. We are the front line of preserving Western civilization. We're not in this to save ourselves. We're in, in we're here to preserve Judeo-Christian society. That, it turns out, to be our role. And we have a right to expect that the Western world will understand this and participate with us in this defense. Incidentally, along this same lines, there is a fundamental truth that's <clears throat> come into existence after the Second World War and since the State of Israel was created. We have always understood we need to protect our home, and if we don't, we will not be protected by anybody else. The, uh, while the Palestinians and the Arabs are fighting for territory and for interest, and they're generated by Jew hatred, we're fighting for our very existence, <clears throat> for our very survival, and for the survival of Western civilization. <clears throat> this has been the secret of Israel's success since the day Israel was founded. In a war for existence, we have no option but victory. To understand that this was famously whispered by Golda Meir to the American Secretary of State Kissinger when he visited here. We have no choice. We will emerge triumphant whether Hezbollah in Lebanon gets involved like Hamas is in Gaza today. In any case, <clears throat> when this war is over, and it will be over, the main losers in this war will be the Palestinians. And if Hezbollah in Lebanon joins in 
the Lebanese will be losers. Iran is prepared to sacrifice Palestinian and, Palestine and Lebanese blood to fight Israel. Although the state of Israel is enduring an unprecedented blow, when the dust settles, the Palestinians will face a response of a magnitude they have never encountered before. And the same fate awaits the Lebanese if Hezbollah decides to enter this battle. Today, the Palestinians are celebrating the murder of children, women, and innocent Israelis. Palestinians, not just uh, in, in, in the areas they control, but Palestinians in the United States are demonstrating on campuses in, in Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, and other places. Palestinians are taking to the streets celebrating the death of innocent Jews. But the lives of the Arabs in Gaza, which were difficult already, will become unbearable for many years to come. Throughout the last century, the Palestinians have continuously brought disaster upon themselves. Abba Evan used to say they never uh, make the mistake of not making a mistake. They are controlled by other countries and, they, and they're paying for it. There's no doubt that the life of the Palestinians have been difficult under Hamas in the Gaza Strip, and the life of the Palestinians is difficult under the Palestinian Authority in an area called the West Bank. But the fact that they are today celebrating the murder of men, women, and children and other innocent civilians means that their education under the Palestinian Authority and under Hamas has been geared toward the hatred of Jews. And they're rejoicing now, but they will not rejoice for long. Their lives in Gaza which were difficult already, will now become unbearable for them for many years to come. Throughout, throughout the last century, the Palestinians have continuously brought disaster upon themselves, and they pay a heavy price for it. The greatest price to be paid by the Palestinians is they have destroyed, with any chance, for peace in the decades to come. No life-loving nation could place trust in these barbaric killers, let alone take the risks that peace with them entails. Incidentally, uh, you know, this, the present war is going to end and we're going to have to figure out what to do after we've destroyed Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Uh, I have a solution, which I uh, 
I'm going to send a letter to the Jerusalem Post to uh, see if they'll publish it. But I have a solution that I don't think anyone else has mentioned yet. And I base this upon my experience in the Israeli army. There is one group of people in Israel that knows how to deal properly with Palestinians and Palestinian terrorists. And that is the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E. There are Jews living in Lebanon. There are Jews living in Syria. There are Jews living in Israel. The Jews have a policy that they are loyal to every country in which they live. In other words, there are Jews officers in the Syrian army. They are loyal to Syria. There are Jews army soldiers in the Israeli army, they are loyal to the state of Israel. And I have served in the army here with Druze soldiers, and they know exactly how to deal with the Palestinians. I've seen it myself when I did army duty, and I served with Druze. They are, they are totally without any hindrances in how they deal with someone they consider their enemy. So my advice to the Israeli government is that when this is all over and we're left with uh, several million Palestinians still living in the Gaza area, we put responsibility for their administration and for the policing of, of them in the hands of Israeli Druze. The Druze know how to deal with them. They know how to deal with them effectively. So I'll go, I'm going to send a letter to the Jerusalem Post suggesting this. I don't know if they're going to publish it. I don't see the idea coming from anybody else. But my experience is in order to deal with a certain kind of population, the best way to, the best ones that put in charge of them are ones who know how to deal with that population, have experience with that population, and they don't have the soft heart that Jews have. Our soft heart, the Jewish soft heart, has led us to the catastrophe we're now facing. It's time that we put people who in charge of the enemy who know how to deal with the enemy and recognize them as an enemy, as not as partners for peace. Thinking they're partners for peace has gotten us in this present situation. We want to survive. We have to be a realistic about that part of the world in which we live and deal with it accordingly. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. President Biden arrived in Israel around noontime on Wednesday afternoon, and I'm pre-recording this program Wednesday afternoon, 
So I don't really have much to comment about the results of his visit, but I will start by quoting some of the things that were written in the Jerusalem Post because they expressed what I think I have to say. First of all, never in history has the Israeli spirit absorbed such a devastating blow. The sudden attack by Hamas terrorists on the communities of Israel south, targeting civilians in their homes and even infants in their cribs, has shaken the entire world. The sheer scale of the carnage, the accounts of the horrors, and the cold-bloodedness of the murderers, who meticulously and cruelly planned the slaughter of innocents, leave no heart unmoved. How can we recover from such a devastating blow which challenges our basic belief in humanity? Yet, in the days that have passed since amidst the shock and the pain, the battle-tested Israeli spirit has risen again, reinvigorated and resolute. The entire nation of Israel has donned various uniforms, some in the field, others symbolically. The country is filled with volunteerism, and generosity on an unprecedented scale. With bowed heads but unwavering resolve, Israelis stand tall in the face of the immense challenge that this moment in time has thrust upon us. We all know that we can have no room for failure. In this war, we must and we will prevail. Incidentally, on a personal level, a large number of my own grandchildren are involved in the war effort. Some were in the regular army to begin with. Others were, have gone back in as, uh, as uh, picked up their uniforms again, gone back to their units, and uh, all of them are uh, under arms right now. And I hope and pray that they and all other Israelis will be safe and sound. Now, there has been an unprecedented expression of solidarity from the United States. This is a first wartime visit to Israel by an American president. And it sends a powerful message to all Israelis and to the nations of the world, friends and foe alike is a striking testament to Biden's personal commitment to the Jewish state and that of the American people toward the Jewish state. Israel is extremely form, for, fortunate to have an ally like that. There is a deep and enduring alliance between Israel and the United States and this is based on shared values of freedom, prosperity, self-fulfillment, faith in humanity, and the faith in the future. The, the attack by Hamas 
sought to undermine precisely those values. The Americans stand resolutely beside us and has moved many Israelis. The greatest challenge still lies ahead of us. The confrontation with Hamas is still in its initial stages and it may yet extend to additional arenas. Hamas is not alone in its assault on the free world. Hezbollah in the north and its patrons, Iran, are determined to fight us and our values and the Western world. Now, the, uh, in recent days, substantial U.S. forces have arrived in a religion to deter them and ensure that their schemes are not succeeding. There is no doubt that the Israeli people deeply appreciate America's unwavering stand. The assistance that the people are providing us with both dramatic and unparalleled, and we are confident that the close collaboration between our two governments and militaries will guarantee that Israel has what it needs to protect its people from harm. But yet, and this is a very important point, yet, even amidst this terrible crisis, we must remember that Israel is an independent and sovereign state, capable of making independent decisions and acting in the best interests of the Israeli citizens. Israel never did and never will ask others to fight its battles. Israel can and will defend itself by itself. The depths of our partnership with the United States and indeed our shared destinies obliges us to recognize each nation's capacity to make its own decisions. At this moment, the strength and endurance of the American-Israeli alliance is a measure of solace. The close bond we share has always carried us through periods of crisis and confidence, of triumph and tribulation. It will weather any storm and will let our nations find our way to safe harbor. So we welcome the, the American president to here in Israel. We thank him for standing with us and and hopefully this will, when this is over, it will be an enduring time of peace. Much of what I said up to now comes from an editorial in the Jerusalem Post on Wednesday. Wednesday, It's almost as though they wrote the script for me and they said what I wanted to say. And I want to go on to say a few other things. Israel's citizens were attacked. Israel has the responsibility to protect its citizens. Understanding the international laws of self-defense is essential. Interestingly enough, the international laws of self-defense coincide with Jewish law on the issue of self-defense. However, because Israel is now at war with Hamas and Gaza, 
There's no doubt that Israel will be attacked by all kind of international media and by Jew haters for purely defensive actions against Hamas. Many of those media attacks will be basis perpetrated by those who do not understand the meaning of self-defense. And by the way, these attacks against Israel have already started, including some members of the U.S. Congress. Self-defense does not simply mean that when you attack, you are permitted to fight back. It means much more. International self-defense laws permit a country to cross a border into another country to pursue the enemy that has attacked them. Self-defense includes preemptive strikes. It's not about who throws the first punch, especially if there's proof of a plan of attack. You know, it's interesting. If you think back to the Six-Day War in 1967, Israel indeed was the first ones to strike, but it struck in a defensive preemptive attack against its enemies, because it knew that the enemy was going to attack. The Talmud in Tractate Sanhedrin echoes this exact sentiment. <coughs> when someone comes to attack you, you must rise in advance and attack them first. The Talmud actually uses the term, if someone comes to kill you, a direct translation of the sentence would be, when someone comes to kill you, you rise and kill him. This is the rabbinic version of a preemptive strike. Part of our current strike in the self-defense of Israel to hit Hamas hard enough that will never again attack us. And that is the express purpose of what's happening. This is, it's been called by, the government has given name of our attack, it's called uh, the War of Iron Swords. And now, there's no doubt that over the next few weeks, enemies of Israel and Jew haters are going to use the media to attack Israel, and it has started already. And by the way, I mean, there are riots by Arabs against the Israeli embassies in other countries now. And uh, as I said, there are members of the U.S. Congress who, uh, who uh, are attacking Israel. And they'll all use all kinds of terms like disproportionate force versus proportionate force and excessive force versus, versus commensurate force. These kinds of terms are always used. Please, anyone who says that Israel uses excessive force will simply be wrong. Disproportionate force is not the Israeli way, and, and proportionate force is not a literary term. It does not mean that if the attackers throw rocks at you, your, your only response could be to throw rocks back at them. Disproportionate force means the attackers did not satisfy certain conditions <clears throat> while attacking. The central condition is whether they reasonably attempted to avoid civilian casualties when attacking their targets, 
and whether their targets were responsible for any previous attacks. Now, <clears throat> the entire world knows by now Israel removed the element of surprise by dropping warning leaflets in Arabic telling the Arabs living in that area to leave and sending texts in Arabic to tell cell phones of civilians in Gaza. They also have what's called roof knocking. They drop non-explosive devices on the roof of civilian homes in Gaza to warn them. This, by the way, is a practice that our army started a number of years ago, warning the civilians ahead of time to get out of the way of a coming Israeli attack. Hamas, on the other hand, tells their citizens to stay put, even threaten them should they decide to vacate. This is one of the many ways in which Hamas turns average people living in Gaza into human shields. Israel targets those responsible for attacking us and that have acknowledged that they are actively planning future attacks. In this sense, Israel's declaration of war against Hamas is its effort to prevent future attacks against our citizens and our territory by Hamas. This is what is called a defensive war. That is why this war, which has been given a name, the War of Iron Swords, is a defensive war. Looking at it in any other way, the operation becomes immoral and unjust. And that is how Israel's enemies and detractors will try to spin the actions that Israeli is ta- is Israel is taking. And again, I can't help but mention there are members of the U.S. Congress who are trying to spin this to make Israel look bad. Our war against Hamas is moral and just. Our rules of fighting are more moral than any other fighting force in the world. It bears repeating something very interesting. Uh, Israel's fighters are not called Israel's army, and it's not called Israel's military fence. The official name of our army is the IDF, which stands for the Israel Defense Forces. In Hebrew, it's called Sahal, which means Fa Haganah Israel. The Hebrew translation of Israel's defense force is the only army in the world that is given a name like that, a defense force. It's interesting, I didn't even realize when the state first came into being that the name given to the army was chosen for a particular reason. It's not called the Israel Army, it's the Israel Defense Force. Now I'm finally, it it dawns on me, I finally woke up, and the world should wake up, why our army has that name. We were attacked savagely, brutally, and 
They plan to continue attack innocent Israeli citizens and even now, in the second week of the uh, war, Hamas is firing rockets at Israeli cities. By the way, the, they had an incident yesterday where one of the rockets fell short and landed on a hospital in Gaza and killed about 500 people, and he tried to blame Israel, but the Israeli army did the research, and realized, and he came to the conclusion that it was the failure of a, of a uh, Hamas rocket. It landed in its own territory. Hamas cares very little, nothing about truth. They care nothing about international law. And anyone who supports Hamas, even if they are members of the, of the American Congress, are guilty of this having no care about the, the value of human life. These are the facts. We have suffered the greatest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust. It was horrible. It was shocking. The entire country has dropped all other issues. If you could go back over the news over the last couple of years, Israel was fighting all kinds of <clears throat> political problems here having to do with the internal policies of the Israeli government. It's interesting, by the way, if you check, check the records of the last couple of years, most of the infighting in Israel, in the uh, Israel's parliament, the Knesset, has very little to do with foreign affairs. Most of the infighting has to do with domestic affairs, about domestic laws. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis have protested on the streets every weekend for more than 10 months for and against government policies. All that is now an aside. If we ever come back to that, it will come back, I'm sure, in a different form. We are now all united, and thank God we have democracies supporting us. I understand, by the way, that the uh, prime minister, the foreign ministers of uh, England and France are on their way here uh, to show their support for Israel. Israel is in the front line of the fight against the forces of darkness, not just here in the Middle East, the forces of darkness around the world. We are in the front line of the battle for Western Judeo-Christian society. And, thank, thank heaven, we have the support to those who understand it, that, that that is what this battle is all about. Until next time, let's hope we hear better news. Jay Shapiro signing off.